This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Very happy to be here with you all. So I'm going to just start by giving you an overview of what we're going to talk about tonight. I'm going to give you an introduction to who I am, to my work and my interests, my research, and what has led me to be here in front of you this evening. And then the way I've decided to organize the content for tonight is to give you brief experiences of the kinds of concepts I'm talking about. So if I'm talking about emotion, I'm going to try and do a little experiment where we can have a sense of what it's like to experience that emotion. When we're talking about meditation, we're going to do very brief meditations. Um, If any of the activities um, are unenjoyable, no problem. They are all going to be very brief. So little experiments into various forms of relaxation and identifying our emotions. So we'll begin by looking at a specific definition of emotion from a Western psychological perspective. We're then going to think about what it's like to feel our emotions in our body, meaning the sensations associated with different emotions. We're going to then define stress and burnout. Now, these concepts may not be um, new to you, but I'm hoping that the way that they're woven together will provide a new lens to look at what they might mean. So starting with emotion, going on to stress and burnout, and then we're going to look at empathy and compassion, both the differences between them and how they relate to stress, burnout, and emotion altogether. And in the end, I'm going to show you an um, atlas of emotion, which is a <clears throat> website and tool that was just launched two weeks ago and a way for us to visually explore and identify our experience of emotion. So to begin, what I'd really like us to do is a brief practice. So as you see from my presentation, I'm going to be talking a lot about stress, about emotion, about our daily experience. And so what I'd like us to do to start is to really uh, arrive here. And what I'm going to recommend that you do is that you have your feet in a comfortable position. For some of you, that's going to be cross-legged. For some of you, that will be your feet on the floor. I recommend that if you're wearing something constrictive around your waist, that you give yourself a little space so that your breath can be truly free for just the next couple minutes. And then I suggest that you have your palms resting either on your thighs or just folded in your lap in front of you. And even though we're sitting in a chair, I'm going to recommend that you really hold your spine up straight. The classic instruction is imagining your spine as though it were a stack or um, a stack of coins. So a nice upright column. And then tilt your chest just ever so slightly to the ceiling. So there were a string from your heart to the ceiling. And having your chin resting in front of you gently. Not sloping too far towards your chest or too far back on your neck. And then gently letting your eyelids fall closed. And for just a couple breaths, relaxing the muscles in our face. Relaxing and releasing through our forehead and our brow. Relaxing and releasing around our eye sockets.
Relaxing and releasing through our cheekbone, and especially through our jaw. Relaxing and releasing through our chin, our lips, and our nostril. And for the next five breaths, we're going to balance paying attention and relaxing. Through our inhale, we pay attention to the sensations of our entire body breathing. And through our exhale, we relax and we release that attention. So inhale, paying attention just to our body being supported in these chairs, our breath, head to toe. And then exhale, releasing and relaxing. And then gently shifting our attention to a narrower focus, just to the rise and the fall of our abdomen. Once again, through our inhale, paying close attention to the sensations of the skin stretching as our belly rises. And then once again, relaxing and releasing through that exhale. And then lastly, we switch to even a narrower target for our focus of attention. Through our inhale, attending to the subtle sensations of breath as it travels in through our nostrils. And then once again on our exhale, just relaxing and releasing that attention. Inhale, attending to the sensations of breath as they come in through our nostril. And exhale, releasing. And just before we begin the rest of this session... Bring to mind, what was your intention for coming here this evening? What was your hope or purpose? And just reflect on that intention for a moment. And then gently wiggling our fingers and toes and blinking our eyes back into the room. And just take a moment to notice if there's any difference in how you are now experiencing being here, any differences in your body, the way you feel. That was about a a five-minute meditation 
Um, and it's absolutely one that's beneficial to do sitting down and with someone guiding you in a formal way. But it's also one that you can try. I recommend with people I work with to try it pretty much any time you have about three free minutes. There's now pretty good evidence to show us that though we think when we have a break, looking at our phone is going to bring us some solace or some distraction, that very often it brings us increased anxiety and not a true break. However, if we can kind of reorient ourselves to just relax into our body, we have a really good chance of being able to get that refreshment that we're looking for. So this is a practice you can do in the elevator. Uh, You're just standing there, focusing on the breath, going to the abdomen, and going to the nostril. And the reason those transitions are, are suggested, or the reasons I found them useful in the work that I've been doing, is it gives you more of an anchor, a more of a, a specific target. Often when we just try to close our eyes and relax, we find ourselves quickly taken away by an idea, by a to-do, maybe by a, a fond memory or maybe a difficult one. And so to give our minds somewhere to go, it really can help us focus and settle in. So just a little bit about myself. Um, I went to, um, I'm, a, I'm a Berkeley grad. I don't know if there's any others in the room. And um, was very fortunate there to do my master's in social work and also my PhD. And in between the two, I worked at San Francisco General Hospital in the emergency room, which was an incredible learning experience in both meaning Uh, as well as stress and work, and led me to the work I do now, which is really focusing on how do we support people whose everyday work environment involves such a high level of distress? How do we help them support their integrity so that they can show up with compassion and they can not feel fatigued by their empathy? Um, I am a teacher in cultivating emotional balance, and this is a training that I've now adapted in different forms to work with people in different environments, including in um, juvenile jails with guards there, as I did for my dissertation, in um, education settings for schools, and now in the hospital working with residents. So cultivating emotional balance is a um, Western psychological approach that's paired with an Eastern uh, contemplative perspective on emotion. So you are, I'm sure, familiar with other contemplative approaches if you've come to other of Osher Mini Med School um, in mindfulness. And this one is targeted specifically on helping people identify and work with their emotions. And that's what we'll be looking at today. Um, Currently, I'm running a study that's called SPRUCE, Supporting Provider Resilience by Upping Compassion and Empathy. And in this study, I'm um, translating some of those tools from, from CEB so that I can teach it to residents. And um, the Atlas of Emotion is why I have that really awesomely impressive photo of me with His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, that uh, makes me happy just to see. But beneath him is the Atlas of Emotion, which is a project that he funded. Um, And my dad and I collaborated on this for the last three years. And we actually, in this room, a week ago, I think it was a week ago, (laughs) Um, we presented in the Grand Rounds for Psychiatry. um, And looking forward to sharing it with you. I think it's a tool that you'll be able to take away from here uh, and explore your own emotions and look at them at a deeper level as well. So let's start with a definition of emotion. When we think of emotion, what what do we think of? What are some words that people feel when they think of emotion? Anyone? Energy. Energy. Anyone else? Feeling. Feeling. 
yeah. How about specific emotions? What ones come up for folks? Anger. Anger, yeah. Maybe one or two more? Sadness. Sadness. Joy. And joy. It's a a pretty good representation. I'm glad joy came up. Sometimes I'll get people listing off, and it's like 25 in before an enjoyable emotion comes up. Um, And indeed, emotions have an energy, right? There is a force behind them. In the second half of this definition, we see that emotions actually efficiently coordinate our response systems. So they are set up to help us respond to the world around us. And the first part of this definition helps us understand that emotion um, is a process. It's, it's not just a kind of unidimensional event. I was sad. There is a trigger to our sadness. There's an experience of our sadness. And there's a response to that sad feeling. And when we help ourselves unpack that process, we can gain a little more understanding and awareness of our emotion. Um, I'll give you a sneak preview. I'm going to be talking about awareness of emotion throughout. I think it's really a skill that can benefit us in, in a variety of ways. Now, we're not always emotional. We are emotional in response to something important to our welfare. And what does that mean? Well, it can be unique to each one of us. Um, something important to me is that my, my cousin is here joining us for this event tonight. Um, but for the rest of you in this room, who's that guy, right? Doesn't matter. So what is important to us can be very unique. The triggers are um, specific. There are, of course, universal triggers. If there was a fire alarm, it would be universally triggering for us to be like, okay, now what next? Maybe fear, maybe irritation. (laughs) It could be a variety of responses, but a trigger that would be universal. Emotions have a variety of dimensions. They are expressed on the face. They are emerging from external and internal stimulus. This one deserves a little unpacking. So we can have an emotion in response to receiving the news that um, someone we really care about has had a promotion in their job. And that just makes us really happy. That's great. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Um, What good news. We could also go home um, after a long day at work and just think about an interaction we had with a colleague or with a manager. And even though that event isn't occurring as we're at home on our couch, that internal stimulus of that thought arising elicits an emotion. And there's no difference, physiologically speaking, or subjectively, in terms of those triggers. So this is really important when we consider how we process our emotions on a daily basis. A lot of us tend to ruminate, to think about what happened, especially if it's something difficult or something undesirable. And we don't necessarily consider what might be the implications of thinking about and kind of continuing to re-trigger that emotion. It can be taxing and exhausting on our system. So interesting to reflect on this idea that emotions are internal and externally um, stimulated. Emotions are felt in the body. We're going to do a little experiment where I see if I can help uh, help you with that and get a sense of palpably what's that like. And emotions are incredibly important for communication with others. That includes through the face, that includes through the voice, right? There's a difference in how I'm communicating with the tone. And there's huge individual differences. And the differences are not that some people are emotional and other people are not, or some people are only angry. Everyone experiences a full range of emotion. However, what we become emotional about is quite distinct 
due to our personal history and due to our um, often early imprints. And then how we become emotional is also quite different. So we do know that there are these kind of set points. Some people that we can, I'm sure, bring to mind easily, when they get angry, it is like zero to a thousand. And then there's those other people who we, you know, maybe admire or envy, who just seem like they never really lose their cool. So there's differences also in how we become emotional. And that is, you know, the kind of dynamic um, intersection between how we were raised, what was going on around us in that environment, genetic predisposition, and any effortful work we've done to manage our emotions over time. So with this, this next image, just imagine these are your coworkers, and you've just told them that you were engaged to be married. So at best, we have the lower corner, right? But you might think that they didn't, no one thought this was a good idea. And I really, you know, I really think it's worthwhile to reflect on just how much is being communicated without a single word, right? Both what we are communicating through our face and what others are, are showing us. And these are universal. So my dad is a pretty well-known research psychologist, Paul Ekman, and he discovered these universal facial expressions, that there was actually a common language for seven main expressions of emotion, We named a couple. We had anger, sadness, joy. Anyone else? Disgust. Yeah. Fear. Surprise. And? We did sad. Affection. Oh, that's a nice one. It's not a universal signal. Um, Yeah. The last one is a hard one to imagine, but it's contempt. Why on earth would we have that so kind of instantiated in our library? Um, It's a very good one for social group dynamics. So showing contempt is a way of shaming someone. And shaming is an effective way of kind of keeping social social norms. Actually, I'm going to not say that. Shaming is not an effective way, (laughs) Um, but it is one way. And I think kind of showing someone contempt is showing them, how could you be doing this? Um, and can give them a little pause and hopefully change their behavior. So now we're going to move on to our next experience of emotion. And I'm going to ask you um, once again to close your eyes. Um, Don't need to get in a formal position this time, but you're going to close your eyes, and I'm just going to ask you to focus on the felt experience here. So, anybody notice any sensations listening to that music? Irritation. Irritation, okay, that's one. And where did you feel it in your body? In your chest. Yeah, like tight? Ugh, yeah, like no, okay. Anyone else? Foreboding. Foreboding, like a dread. Yeah, that's what I get too. And do you notice, do you feel it anywhere or a certain temperature? In the tummy, yeah. 
Yeah. Anybody else? And and just yeah, what's going to happen? Um, yes, absolutely. And did you notice it anywhere? Yeah, tensing up a little. Okay. Tension, yeah. And when she began to get to doing the upward and down of the sangha, it went up and down in my body. Wow. Yeah, so up and down in the whole body with the kind of music. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, we can experience and be triggered to an emotion through any of our sense portals. So through sound, through sight, through smell, through taste, through touch, and then, of course, in our mind. Um, and, and sound is one, I think, is, is a nice one to play with because it's not what we would always think of as eliciting a kind of um, resonance or response. Okay, are you guys ready for one more? I don't think it'll be as bad. Okay. So again, closing, closing our eyes just so we're not getting affected by the visual. We're really just focusing on the sound. Okay, that stopped abruptly, but any, uh, any differences in, in how people felt hearing that? Yeah. Well, that was just joyful. Joyful, right, and where? Uh, from my uh, gut up. Yeah, from your gut up, yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. You know, I was just thinking of great memories from college. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, it, I literally felt my feet moving. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I've played this video in New Delhi and in um, Scotland and, I mean, like, everywhere I've given emotion workshops and there seems to be an overlay if people have a memory or nostalgia, but there is something that is just, there's a real uplift here um, with the voice, I think, even if you don't know what the words are. But reach out, I'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> but they will be there for you. That's the nice part. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, you know, I've, I've looked for videos um, over the years that are reliably uh, emotion inducing and not overwhelming. And it's very hard. Um, even when I find ones that are surprising, it's too surprising for some people. Or if I find one that I think are scary, someone finds it exhilarating. So I've, I've actually kind of winnowed to these videos um, for sound. But my point here is to really start giving you this opportunity to look inward at what is your felt experience of emotion. And there's a reason. It's not just that, oh, wow, I, I, there are sensations. That's neat. You probably already knew that. But our felt sensations of emotion can be a really great kind of first line for us to start realizing, I'm becoming emotional. So often we're emotional, we realize we're emotional only after we're halfway through our uh, behavior. Or someone says to us, why are you so upset? And we're like, I'm not upset, right? And um, I think that as we learn to tune in to our felt experience of emotion, we start to have a better ability to recognize those signals. And to really, and you know, what's interesting is sometimes we can realize that there's actually a lot of holding that we're doing. 
and people more familiar with body work or any kind of um, meditation practice have probably already done some of that um, internal reflection where you're looking at what, you know, in my body, where am I holding tension, what is happening. And maybe even when we did our first brief practice, you noticed, gosh, I have a lot of tension in my face. I didn't even realize I was holding it there until I attended to it. So this next um, slide, oh, sorry, that word suppress is a little off, gives us a little bit more of the data on what is happening, physiologically speaking, uh, when we're having an emotion episode, and what are our strategies for managing those emotions. So here we have watch, suppress, and reappraise. What you see below is uh, a slide from a study by a a professor by the name of James Gross. He's at Stanford University. He studies a lot of emotion and physiology. And in one of his experiments, he set up people and gave them three different sets of instructions. To one group, he said, simply watch what's happening in this film I'm going to show you. In the second group, he said, whatever you see, try to pretend you are not feeling it and definitely don't show it. And the third group, he said, when you see this film, recognize and pay attention to your emotions, but try not to react. So this was watch, suppress, and reappraise. The film he showed them was a pretty horrific um, kind of surgery, open surgery type film. Disgust is a very easy emotion to measure physiologically, so it's one that experimenters like to use. It's not just that all social psychologists are evil. Um, and what we see here is something interesting. So the suppress is this dotted line, and what we're seeing of the units of change is heart rate, heart rate and um, skin conductance. So how elevated is our physiological arousal with a very blunt measure? And when we are, even when these people are told to suppress, they are having a higher arousal than the people told simply to watch or to reappraise. And as the film and its difficulty is being displayed, these people who are suppressing and not showing anything and supposedly not feeling anything are actually having a physiological higher arousal. They're getting more drained and more stressed. So what's interesting about this, especially in terms of why pay attention to our emotions, aren't those the things we just keep under the bed? Um, I, I had someone in, in the UK, my friend's uh, grandmother, you teach people about emotions? That can't help anything. Um, which I, uh, Very stiff upper lip. It was nice to see those cultural differences. Um, and so I think this idea of paying attention to our emotions and being aware of them, whether that's watching them or whether that's reappraising, can actually be a more effective strategy than the suppression. So for folks in um, working in medicine or working even in education, where on an everyday basis you're getting triggered to a lot of emotions that it wouldn't be good to share, right? You don't want to show every time you're annoyed with a student who's asking a question or a patient who's overly anxious. You don't want to necessarily express everything you're feeling, but to have an awareness of it, that's the ideal, um, and it's an ideal not only because you're allowing yourself to pick up on those emotional cues, but because it actually, in this way, is less effortful on your system than trying to avoid and suppress what you're feeling. We'll get into this a bit more. So let's, let's talk about burnout. Um, I'm sure most of you in the room have heard of the term burnout or maybe even experienced burnout. How many people in this room have worked in healthcare at some point? 
Okay, so fair number. How about just general human service work? So directly working with others. Yeah, okay. So burnout is specifically described as a phenomena that can occur when you're working closely with other humans, initially designed for hospitals and now used in schools and actually corporations as well. So the first level of burnout is an emotional exhaustion, and that is the everyday emotional labor of working with others. So we think of physical labor as, you know, I, here I am, I, I got to build this house. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, wood to move. There's a lot of hammering to do. You can tell I don't build houses. Um, and then we have the emotional labor of lifting and holding up that kind of face of, here I am, and I'm present, and I'm listening and I'm taking in what you're telling me. And that, that emotional labor can have a toll. It's not in and of itself terrible. And anyone who's working in human service agencies and human service settings, there will be some level of exhaustion, just hearing and the volume of hearing people who are struggling. When things start to get a little bit worse is when people feel that what they do doesn't make a difference, that there's a lack of purpose, a lack of meaning or efficacy. Now, what we've seen is when people feel that what they do makes a difference, they can actually sustain a lot more difficulty for a longer amount of time. But when because of paperwork or because of our own feelings of limitations, we feel that the work just isn't making a difference, it's almost intolerable. And that can lead to this depersonalization, also sometimes called just a cynicism, Every one of us, I'm sure, has worked with at least one person who had reached that level of burnout, where they just didn't care. They were there, but they weren't really there. They showed up physically to the job, but they didn't make any effort, and they're just distancing. Now, that level of burnout, even if you have one person on a team with that, can just make a huge impact. And when we think about how do we reach these people with this level of burnout, there's not a lot of evidence for us to draw on. And when we look at emotional exhaustion, we can apply some basic strategies of emotional awareness. But with depersonalization, I think we actually have to start thinking about how to improve people's experience of efficacy and meaning. How do we help them maybe remember that what they do does make a difference? One of the reasons burnout is so incredibly prevalent in healthcare. We have trainees uh, who... the average numbers nationally is that residents have about 50 to 80 percent burnout in their first three years or their their three years of residency and my my hypothesis having worked with this population is that they have such a strong emphasis on helping others what they do makes a difference if they help others however you can't always help others due to limitations in the system, due to limitations in your training experience, due to limitations of your patients who maybe won't follow up or don't have the resources. So if your entire sense of success is based on your patients doing okay, it could be easier to fall into that lack of meaning. So one thing I'm often working with um, in the residents I teach is how can you find something that's meaningful about how you exist in the room with these patients? What's the quality of the provider you want to be? Can you feel successful about that? Um, And if that still seems too hard, can you just feel successful about the fact that you showed up today? So this definite reappraisal of how can I consider and reflect on what I'm doing so that there's some meaning, some purpose in it. 
So what is the relationship then between emotion and burnout and stress? So here there's a schematic that represents a little bit of what we know in terms of how our over-arousal of emotion leads to stress. So what we know is that emotion, when it has a high intensity and a density, meaning we're not expressing it, we're holding it in. So high intensity, high density, and high frequency is what leads to our over-arousal of stress. And it's interesting, we have some stress physiology researchers here at UCSF, a whole lab um, that Wendy Berry Mendez runs, and it's, you would think that emotion and stress were these completely different entities, and yet there's, there's no difference. Underneath our stress is an emotion. Most often, the emotion underneath our stress is anxiety, is fear. Occasionally, it's also anger, not occasionally. Often, it's also irritation or anger. We're just, ugh, why did they do that, right? And even more occasionally, we have a stressed emotion from sadness as well, disappointment. And in the earliest days of stress research, there was both eustress and de-stress. Eustress was a high and enjoyable experience of emotion. Overwhelming. Being happy is over-arousal of emotion, generally, unless we're just content. So eustress, unfortunately, has gotten lost, and we've spent a lot of time focusing on de-stress, or what what it's like when we're over-aroused in a way that's unpleasant. Now, not all stress is created equal. (laughs) These are both stressed animals. And one is experiencing what's called a challenge-based stress, and the other is experiencing a threat-based stress. Some of you may have already heard of these ideas. Robert Sapolsky at Stanford has done a lot of great work translating this for the public. Um, And actually, researchers from UCSF Uh, Richard Lazarus and Susan Folkman designed this uh, initial conceptual idea that when we have, and I'm sorry it's hard to see that challenge, um, when we have um, an amount of resources that is outweighed by the demands, that is what creates an experience of threat. So for example, if I'm working in the emergency room, and when I was there I was a social worker, and I have a patient come in and they're telling me they don't feel safe to go home. Maybe there's domestic violence, and they're not sure what to do. Now, if I feel that I've had a history of working with cases like this, I'm working with a great team, uh, I, I feel like I can build rapport and make this work, then the demands are I have enough resources to meet them. And I'm actually in this kind of optimal area of performance. It's, it's called a good stress. When we're doing some of our best work, we're not completely relaxed. We are attentive and focused. Our emotions are working for us. However, if I felt that, oh my God, I can't believe this came in. I'm actually supposed to leave in five minutes. I've already had three, three other cases today that were so hard. Everybody who I work with tonight is just burnt out. Then my, my demands outweigh my resources. And my ability to respond is different. It's more rigid. It's less flexible. And this is demonstrated physiologically. There's a different way our body responds when we're in a threat and when we're in a challenge. Now, this would be just a one-incident scenario. We have our little, our little representations here. However, on a day-to-day basis, especially in a healthcare environment, there's just so many of these incidents, right? And that can lead, instead of to a kind of fight, flight, or freeze, to something more like burnout. Burnout is actually identified as being six months or longer. So there's a longer, it's not just what you feel one day. It's a chronic experience of stress. 
So I want to give you a little bit of um, a window into the research that I've been doing about empathy and tie in these ideas of emotion, of burnout, emotion and stress to empathy. So thinking about this incredibly important skill that doctors should have and nurses should have and physical therapists should have with their patients, it's actually something we don't think about specifically. We know that we think empathy is pretty good, and luckily in the last 10 years there's been a lot more emphasis on that work. But what does it mean? So I did a series of interviews with residents last year on one, please give me an example of when it was easy to feel empathy with a patient and when it was hard. And one example I got was about working with a woman who was deaf and had a severe respiratory infection. She was awaiting surgery, but there was a lot of unforeseen delays. Because of her infection, all of the providers had to wear masks. So she couldn't read their lips, and she couldn't hear what they were saying. She felt very distressed and upset. And um, this resident describes figuring out a way to contact her primary care provider and to bring her primary care provider in, who has a good rapport. They were started writing notes together and really helping this patient feel at ease. And so what we see in that example is that this resident is recognizing the distress in this woman who was kind of upset, screaming, crying, and then allowing herself to consider what is the way I can best kind of respond or meet the needs of this patient. Another example was actually a difficult time to feel empathy. And this resident described that there was a patient who was just really hard to get along with. Um, With all the nurses and doctors, he would second-guess everything done to him. He would deny certain treatments and then demand that same one that same day. And this resident said they they felt so frustrated working with this patient. It just was wearing wearing them down. And they, on their um, one incident, kind of went in right before they were going to talk to the patient and just witnessed the way that doctors were kind of poking and prodding and, you know, touching the patient. And it gave this resident a moment of of true empathy and reflection. I really wouldn't want to be poked and touched that way either. That must be awful. And after that kind of realization, they found that what was a, a very difficult to empathize with patient was someone they could really relate to, someone who didn't want to be pushed around or just told what to do and talked over. And so I thought that was two nice examples of empathy. And two nice examples of empathy that show us that authentic empathy doesn't mean being a marshmallow. I think people assume when I say, oh, be, be empathic, it means always being nice. Or it means just kind of holding someone's hand by the bedside. They're often, it's a, it's a precision tool, and there are specific skills. And what we need to do is train ourselves to be able to not only identify what's happening to someone, but learn how to respond in a way that is both uh, attended to that person, but not losing ourselves in the distress of that person and what's happening to them. So this is where we're going to bring in the relationship between empathy and stress. So with empathy, we have two parts happening at once. Empathy is our immediate emotional response. Like we had to the music, like you would have if you even heard uh, a baby crying. Um, And in fact, infants, the earliest empathy we have is the empathy of newborns crying with one another. It's one of very early empathy study. 
and we have this emotional affective resonance of there is distress, I feel distress. And we're actually hardwired head to toe for this. Now, the second aspect of empathy is our, our why, what's happening, our, 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 our determination to understand and figure it out. So these are the two components of empathy. <clears throat> you see here I'm putting professional empathy. I'll add in another aspect of what it means for us to then act on this empathy. So in a more kind of ideal way, this emotional resonance and this perspective taking and appraisal would lead us to have an empathic response. And that empathic response could vary from, as I mentioned in the example, finding a primary care doctor for a distressed patient or simply witnessing and noticing what was happening to your patient so you could interact with them in a healthier way. But with empathic response, I'm really suggesting that this doesn't have to be acting. It can just be a stance, a desire for compassion. So this inactive compassion is a term coined by uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, and she runs a center called Upaya in which she trains doctors who work with the dying to really essentially kind of pump up their compassion. It's like a gymnasium of compassion. The idea being, if we can, at our every, cor- uh, every uh, turn and every corner, approach a situation with compassion, then we will be able to respond meaningfully to our patients. What's interesting here is that this actually is something we can do. So remember how I was saying with burnout, there's this difficulty of, well, I can't actually help this person. And actually, I see that they're upset. I resonate to their distress, and I know what they need, and I can't help them. We can have an empathic response, just one of caring, one of compassion, and that can be our doing. That can be, oftentimes we can react. We can make an extra phone call. We can help out. But when we can't, we can have an open stance of compassion. Now, this is a leap of faith. It really is. And when I work with um, the residents this last year, they've, it's been some funny things where they've told me things like, I really thought that this was going to be really too San Francisco for me, this compassion training. Um, and, but it's not like I have that many options. So, you know, really, what are your options? You see someone suffering. You recognize the need. You can't help them. What do you do? You just try, you know, she, she was talking about how silly she felt wishing someone well. Because I suggested if you see this person suffering and you can't help them, just say, gosh, I wish you were, I wish, I wish you could know some ease and comfort. I wish you felt better. She said it just helped her from bringing that then to the next case or feeling irritated or feeling frustrated. Now, another thing, unfortunately, that can occur with empathy is we have this resonance, we have this appraisal, Except that appraisal is, well, yeah, that person's suffering, but I've already seen them twice this week in the ER. If they really wanted to get help, they wouldn't keep drinking. It's their fault. Now, that may indeed be true, but that stance, that aversive stance, not only does it harden us to our patients and make it very difficult to engage, it also hardens us to that open and ability to feel meaning and engagement. Now, what allows us to stay in jobs that are, that are difficult is feeling some boost, some reward of connection. So with this aversion, we're creating distance. We're creating a callousness on our heart. Um, and where we can intervene with aversion is really in this appraisal. 
How are we thinking about someone? Sometimes we don't have any control of our immediate response. So we see this person coming in for the third time that we've been working. Again, they've hurt themselves. They were drinking, something like this. Um, And our immediate response is, oh, God, not again. And yet we still have an opportunity, even within that, to say, this person is trying to be happy, to be free from suffering, just like everyone. The way they are doing it is just so unskillful. (laughs) And yet, I wish they also were free. So this kind of unconditional compassion, it's a high-level practice. And again, I I ask you, what's, what's the alternative? You can start practicing this in very simple ways. Uh, I've actually found that Muni is a great time to practice on-the-spot compassion. Not only because it breaks down a lot, and you're just like, are you kidding me? We live in this city, and it breaks down like this all the time. Um, But also when you're just jammed in, and that person with the backpack who just keeps hitting you, and you're like, what is their problem? And um, it's a really nice moment to catch yourself getting tight, and just releasing. And I wish they were happy too. And again, this seems like, why would I even start to try that? But what we tend our mind towards is how we're leading our lives. And if we kind of tend it towards compassion and use the entire world as our gymnasium for it, it's, it's a great opportunity. And um, my guarantee is that you will feel happier. Um, That is a direct quote from the Dalai Lama, uh, not necessarily backed up. I mean, there's some scientific evidence that daily compassion practice improves your happiness, but he doesn't talk about the muni. Um, But his overall idea is, is, is definitely, if you want to be more happy, practice more compassion. And if you want to lead a longer life, practice more compassion. And there's something interesting about how compassion releases us from these difficult, draining emotions. And I'm sure that we'll see over time, as stress research becomes more and more important, because more and more people are struggling and suffering with stress, that the strategies we have to deal with it are trying to release it, trying to identifying it, trying to let it go. And on-the-spot compassion is, is an easy way to do it. You don't even need your phone. You don't need an app. You just, you just practice it. And again, kind of tying it together, if you become aware of that tightness around your feelings, of your emotions, and then you release with just that compassion. We're going to do a brief compassion practice here, so I'll give you some instruction. I'm sure many of you in the room have had a lot of experience already. The other way that uh, empathy can really be thwarted is through sympathetic distress. This is what has kept decades of medical education away from teaching empathy. This concern that, well, but if I care about people, I'm kind of going to lose myself in their suffering. And that happens. We can absolutely, without even having to see someone directly, lose ourselves in the suffering of what's happening worldwide. There are so many incidences where people just senselessly are losing their life or losing their health or their home. And I think that there's just a gentle balance that we're always managing between callousness and overcaring. And we really, we really just have to practice that balance over and over of leaning in too much to the point where we get kind of depressed and not helpful to anyone, and then leaning out so much that we just aren't caring. Things don't matter. 
So I think that's a skill that people learn throughout their lives, and I'm sure you all have learned through being professionals, being parents, um, and many other things. But it's good for us to keep in mind that it's not necessarily um, a one-way street. It's not that we tune in and care about what's happening to the people and we fall into distress. The other option is that we tune in and we care about people with a stance of compassion. And there's been great research recently by a neuroscientist by the name of Tanya Singer um, around the difference between compassion fatigue and empathy fatigue. So compassion fatigue or compassionate burnout has been a term for a long time, and she's really suggesting that we shift our terms. We can have empathic fatigue, a fatigue of losing ourselves in the emotions with others, but our compassion actually is boundless, and we can continue to exercise it, continue to try to practice it, and that it might be, in fact, a solution to that fatigue. And don't take my word for it. Try it on the Muni. Um, Or try it at home. So the basic theory here, empathy can lead to empathic distress, aversion, avoidance, and burnout. But empathy can also lead to compassion and meaning, connection and work. So what I've been teaching and what I've been doing here at UCSF is this program supporting provider resilience by upping compassion and empathy. And for this, I did a pre-assessment of talking with folks in different residency programs, talking with residents, meeting with a group of patient families, and asking them, what is it like when your provider is empathic or not? And asking residents, what gets in the way of your compassion? And then I adapted the Cultivating Emotional Balance training program and have been doing a pilot. I'm actually finishing up my first full year of curriculum um, just this month. And my main objectives were reducing stress, improving clear communication, and teaching people this professional empathy. So how do you have that stance of compassion and still tune into what's happening to others? Part of that included giving people training, basic training in facial expression of emotion, basic training in what is different between anger and fear, in what triggers us to it, how we respond to it, and otherwise. And then overall emotional awareness. The last thing we'll do tonight is a very small emotional awareness exercise, but this basically means what triggers my emotion, what is my experience of my emotion, and what are my responses, and giving ourselves that granular level of understanding. So how is this actually taught? Well, one of the things is many moments of awareness and breath training. Now, that sounds really fancy, but that's how we started our evening. Remember, we just focused on our whole body, on our abdomen, on our nose. So this aspect of training, attention training, there's a lot of research to support the fact that if we are having this ability to rest our mind in one single point of attention, We're developing a muscle that allows us to truly be aware of what's around, to have that capacity to notice when your emotions arise, to notice when other disturbing thoughts arise. So attention training of training your mind to be in one place at a time with stability. You can do this through these just small little bites, focusing on your body, focusing on your abdomen, focusing on the nose. Um, And interoceptive awareness, very fancy way of saying What does it feel like to have emotions in your body? What does it feel like to have your breath in your body? Then the uh, next part here are on-the-spot heart practices. So there are four modes. Some of you who have more familiarity with 
Buddhist psychology will recognize these as the four Brahmaviharas. The first is setting an intention and aspiration. So as I was suggesting earlier, in the beginning of our practice, why did you come to this lecture tonight? And really reminding yourself before everything you do, why am, why, why am I doing this? What is my purpose? I've had a resident tell me that in between patients, before she opens the door, she tries to remind herself, I am here to be a compassionate presence. In between each patient. So just setting that intention doesn't have to be formally sitting in a practice. You can just, again, have a mindfulness of bringing this to mind. What is my intention? What is my aspiration? I really recommend that you start small. Um, Don't go with your highest aspiration uh, first. Then a compassion meditation. And so literally in just a moment here, I'm I'm just going to ask us to just quietly again close our eyes and tune back in. And as an easy practice for this target, I'm just going to ask you to bring to mind a friend or loved one, someone who we know is going through a hard time, struggling, maybe with health or finance or professional. We just bring them clearly to mind. And we imagine what it would be like for them to know a sense of ease and peace, a sense of equanimity. And on our next breath, we simply draw in that wish and intention of compassion for them. May this person who struggles no ease and no peace. May this person who struggles have some sense of clarity and light and openness in their own heart. And again, not with an intention or reason of what we need to do to fix or help them, just simply our own awareness of our compassion for this person. And just one more breath of drawing in, recognizing this person and their struggle. And then letting it out with that wish. May they be free. May they be happy. May they be at ease. And then gently blinking our eyes back open. Don't even need to close your eyes. But just that tenderizing of the heart towards another. It can really help us overcome some of our more entrenched feelings of grief and helplessness. Especially for family members who we can't help. I'm sure every one of us has one of those in the room. And we can just spin our wheels endlessly, wishing that we could change something about their decisions or their physical health or whatever it is. With the joy practice, this this is a really nice one, just attending to and tuning into the goodness around you at all times. This is especially useful when you're just feeling worn out. You don't really even have a feeling of wanting to set an intention or aspiration. And you just notice and look around, and you see just so much goodness, so much sweetness between people. Working the ER, I would just see just the tenderness between um, patients who didn't even know each other, comforting each other in the waiting room, just small things, tending our mind towards that. We can do that as a formal practice at the end of the day. 
What did I see today that reminded me that things are basically good, basically okay? There's a great deal of research on gratitude. If you just Google gratitude research, many, many special forms and programs you could try. And then balance is this idea of when we have a moment of not doing something, can we just rest in that moment, not move on, not do the next thing? And training in that is actually the hardest and highest level practice. So I was telling you about this on-the-spot emotion awareness. Uh, I developed an app. I know I was just saying you don't need an app. Um, And yet, here I am in Silicon Valley. Um, So why not? And I do think for residents who, unless they're reminded to do it, like many of us in a busy day, it just is not going to happen. And I ask them a couple times a day to tell me about the trigger of their emotion, to what, what they felt and what they did, and did that for a couple weeks. So I'm just going to ask you, does anyone here remember their most recent experience of emotion? And if you do, you can just, I think, well, we'll do it personally so we can do it um, efficiently. So if you remember your most recent episode, it could have been irritation or sadness. Do you remember what triggered it? Who was involved? What was happening? Do you remember what you felt in your body when it was happening? And then what was your response? Very simple set of questions. But if we do that a couple times a day and just tune in, we get, again, that greater granularity of understanding of what are our emotions, what's happening. So the last thing I'm going to show you is um, this Atlas of Emotion. So this is a quote that, that launched the whole project. In order to find the new world, we needed a map. To find emotional awareness, we needed a new kind of map. So I'm going to show you. <clears throat> this is the Atlas of Emotion. It's online, and it's free. And who wants, which emotion do we want to look at? We only get to choose one for now. Anybody? Oh, so enjoyment. So what we see is a basic definition, and then we get to get a sense of all the various states of enjoyment, from rejoicing, right, and what warm, uplifting feeling, all the way, naches, any members of the tribe in the room, means the uh, enjoyment specifically of your offspring doing well. Right? Such a specific enjoyment. To relief. Such a different kind of experience, still an enjoyable emotion. And then we look not only at the states, we look at what are the likely actions or responses to these emotional states. So difference between excitement and ecstasy, and here with sensory pleasures. And then we also see, this is I was describing that these emotions exist in a timeline, that there's a trigger to the emotion, there are you know, social interactions or things that are more specific, universal and learned triggers. Um, there's our, our perception. Do I like playing badminton? Is that actually going to be a trigger for me? Well, if I perceive it because of my unique experience to be so, indeed. And then there's our response to emotion, which includes those states and actions. So we have this with each emotion. So, for example, with fear, we see a whole other set of difficult emotions 
most often that lead to different states and different ways that we act. So I invite you to check this out online and share it with friends. And um, very excited I got to show it to you all here. So for my last slide, <laughs> thank you for your attention. It really cracks me up. We had a meeting in Anaheim, um, and they put these hats on us. But thank you very much. Looking forward to your questions. Please. When you speak about empathy, uh, one, one example that occurred to me was we all know people who are in difficult circumstances, a bad marriage, a bad job, and we want them to move into something more positive. Mm. So we go and speak to that person. We get a pretty rapid agreement that comes from the brain. Mm. But as soon as we suggest an action to leave that, the um, stress might be bad, but it's a known factor, and it's yeah. much more comfortable than the stress of going into an unknown possibility. Yes. And they begin, this, the messenger becomes the enemy, hmm. even though the message is agreed upon. Yeah. It's like, I'm the bad guy. I'm not the bad husband that's doing this to you. But all of a sudden, I am. And the anger and the, the response is extremely um, frustrating. So uh, yeah. I don't know how to work out that in your empathy models, because there's there's sometimes when you try and it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Maybe someone else has to pick up the... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think your empathy isn't the problem. The empathy is clearly demonstrated, so you have that resonance to this person's struggle. You see clearly what's going on, and your response is one that's compassionate from your point of view. However, what we believe to be compassionate can sometimes not be accurate. And I, I think so it's, it's a little bit in that um, level of appraisal. We, what I think this person needs is, is to leave. Every single direction points to it. But what I'm not seeing is this whole history of instability from them in their childhood when they were abandoned. So the idea of, so I think, I think sometimes our appraisal can be quick and, and, and without, um, without an, and like the, how could we know, right? Okay. So, so yeah, thank you. Other questions? I'm appreciating your answer. Oh. Thank you, because I lived that. Oh, okay. You know, I then finally opened up about your life. Yeah. All of it all makes sense. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yes, and then yes, yeah. Are you doing any work around um, caregivers and this kind of um, emotional response? I'm thinking particularly for people who are non professional caregivers. Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 I totally, yes, I, I agree. And um, I'm fortunate to do some work with um, Alyssa Eppel, who's over at Laurel Heights, and she's been doing a lot of work with caregivers. So through her, um, I'm getting the opportunity to figure out is there a way that we can actually deliver some of these, these, um, these tools and solutions online? Because unfortunately with caregivers, there's often a difficulty of social isolation enforced by kind of having to be there for someone all the time. Again, for a job you didn't necessarily sign up to. Interesting thing is there's some great caregiver research that was also done here at UC with um, Judy Moskowitz and um, Susan Folkman. And they found this very high co-occurrence of positive emotions and stress. 
So someone can be having a very stressful situation. Of They did a whole study with uh, caregivers of patients with HIV and AIDS. And what they found was those caregivers who felt that what they did made a difference, again, that kind of, this matters, were able to experience some joyful emotion throughout their difficult day. I found the same to be true in my research with residents. When I asked them about their daily experience of emotion, uh, what would you guess would be their number one emotion experience over the course of a week? Yeah, frustration. Their number one that was more than half, or actually 20%, was peaceful. (laughs) And then other enjoyable emotions with 50% of reported emotion, followed up by frustration and annoyance. Um, But there was this kind of moments where things were okay, that they felt like what they did was valuable or towards a goal. So I think one of the great strategies of working with caregivers is really helping them with that sense of meaning, especially hard with patients with prefrontal dementia. So Bob Levinson at Berkeley does a lot of work in trying to help understand what goes on when the patient no longer projects facial expression of emotion and doesn't read facial expression of emotion. That makes the caregiver's job just much harder. And so I think really having and helping train people, again, into those more intrinsic senses of meaning in those cases, you're not going to get the feedback of, thank you for making me three meals a day and being here all the time. That may not be available. So, yeah. I just think listening to you describe the process sure. would be invaluable. Yeah. 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 It's a great idea. Yeah, I've done I've done some trainings for Zen Hospice with uh, um, home health nurses, as a, and they choose it a little bit, but they don't get the training. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a great idea. Thanks. Yes. For those of us who are healthcare users, sure. As opposed to healthcare providers, how do you suggest we evaluate our providers? On their advocacy yeah. in terms of empathy and all the other things you've talked about in order to decide whether to continue using them? Mm, that's a great question. I think, you know, what's interesting is what, when I did this uh, focus group with the patient family members, this was for peds, for pediatrics, but I asked them, how do you know your provider's being empathic? And the responses were so divergent. Some people said they don't call me. Often when um, a pediatric doctor comes in the room, they say, how's mom doing, if, if the mom's there? And this woman said, don't call me mom. Call me by my first name or call me by Mrs. So-and-so. Um, so that to her was empathy. I respect your role. For another person it was, the doctor comes in the room and they put their hand on my hand. And for another person it was, they give me all of the medical information expecting I'll know how to use it. So I, I think... Of course, per person, it'll be really different what you're looking for and what makes you feel taken care of, what makes you feel listened to. But I believe uh, it's, a, it's a gestalt experience. You're in that room with that person. You're experiencing them. And I think you know. I, mean, I have a question. Have you ever struggled to be like, I'm not sure, is this person the right kind of empathy for me? Has that ever been a struggle, or you feel pretty clear when you meet them? Well, I have a lot of questions from my primary care provider. Yeah. I'm a lot older than they are. Sure. Will they still be practicing when I'm still alive and quite old? But we might lose them. Right. At the very end. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I'm, 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 
I'm conflicted about whether or not my provider is adequately empathetic or is really quite intelligent about my irrational fears. <laughs> yes. I- I hope you have some more time to figure it out with them. It's an important question, you know, and I haven't really thought of it from that perspective of, I, I have been a healthcare recipient. I had a back surgery a couple of years ago, um, and I had one provider, uh, not at UCSF, I'm happy to say, but who was so clearly burnt out. I was already doing this research, and I just was overwhelmed by his callousness. And in my network at the time, he was the only person who could see me. I didn't have a choice. And then I saw someone, luckily, here, my, uh, my orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Shane Birch, just, I mean, the guy was, I mean, he is, he is beyond stressed out. I mean, he sees so many patients, is responsible for so many residents. He made me feel like I mattered. He really did. And it was very simple. So I think, you know, I, I do think it can be sometimes very cut and dry and other times a little more nuanced and balancing our own, am I, like, is this real, what I'm feeling? There's a great, uh, there's a great, turn of phrase about emotion by a um, Tibetan Lama who teaches in the West for the last 25 years. And he says, our emotions, they can be real and yet not true. So that fear that you're experiencing of your provider, it's a real fear. Is it true? Is it based in reality? And sometimes the work we need to do with our emotional experiences is, is make that important distinction. It's not that it isn't important, right? Oh, I'm feeling this. This is a real emotion and it matters. But is it true? Is it true to this reality? We often import our experiences of emotion from early times in our life. So. Do, you, do you think conflicts in that regard lead to bad outcomes? Conflicts in which regard? Lack of good communication with your life. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, there is one study that's like endlessly cited because uh, less empathy in provider was equated with higher malpractice suits. That's when medical education really started getting excited about empathy, and I'm grateful for it. It's hard to prove. It's a hard area of research. There's not, unless we had both patients and doctors wearing GoPros on their head, um, it will be really hard to evaluate empathy. We're asking people, are you empathic? I mean, that's a tough one. And then you're asking the patients, and, and unfortunately, there's a very positive, or fortunately, there's a pretty positive skew for the people who do respond. People who do respond to these surveys say they really like their providers, but that's like 11%. So, yeah? I've been involved in um, assisting a friend with a very serious medical issue, and while I was doing Yeah, I hear your question. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, I, I think that's such a good question. Like, if you're empathic, does that mean that you maybe are not as good at your job? <laughs> and I think that that's, that's a common belief. 
Like, there's no way someone could care that much and still be really on top of what they're doing. And for sure, with surgeon, they're still, surgeons still believe um, and will hold, hold true that empathy would get in the way of my job. Um, I am not a surgeon. I'm not going to tell them it's not true. But I don't believe it. And for most healthcare professionals, I mean, the, the programs I work in are the ones you would expect. Pediatrics, family community medicine, general internal medicine. And for these people, indeed, the majority of their work, the majority of their treatment is them, right? I mean, I heard such an excellent placebo lecture at an integrative medicine conference. And one thing that's important to say is placebo is delivered in a very effective way by very empathic doctors. So if you want to believe in it or not, but the empathy really does come through. So, yeah, good question. Yes, please. All emotions are real but are not true. What makes the difference between the real and the true? Yes, great question. So all emotions are real but not true. What makes the difference? So they're not all not true. Um, I, so let's say, um, let's say I came here and my computer didn't work and I couldn't get my PowerPoint slide presentation off, and I was just going to have to talk without any pretty pictures, there would be a very real sense of fear, and it would be true, right? Absolutely based in reality, like this may not be the presentation I'd hoped it would be. Um, however, if, <clears throat> if I came here already anxious about everything that could go wrong <laughs> with, with no real trigger, that would be a real experience of fear that wasn't based in reality of now. It might have to do with, um, I've been speaking publicly for a while now, but the first couple times I did, I mean, I got sick every time. Like, really nauseous every time before I spoke. And that was a real feeling of fear, not based on any reality. And so I think knowing the difference, the way that um, this um, Lama describes it, it's kind of funny. He talks about a fear of heights that he got from being very young, falling out of a tree and hurting himself. So then he was in Kuala Lumpur, and they have the tallest buildings in the world, and they have a bridge in between the two that's made out of glass. And so he's trying to walk over this bridge, and he's like, this is very real and not true, and, you know, I've been, like, I'm supposedly a reincarnate lama, I've been practicing meditation for 25 years, he was younger then, and, and he just had such a hard time getting himself through getting himself through. The fear was just gripping him. I think about this more, you know, in, in relationships. You know, we've been through bad relationships. We've had breakups, difficulty, and we can have that very real fear that prevents us from moving forward. And his suggestion is not to white-knuckle it, and just push yourself ahead, and not to just be like, no, it's cool. I'll just stay out. I'll just hang out on the side of the bridge. I'll, I'll let you guys walk through, kind of stand in the sidelines. Um, what he says is what we really need to do at that point is that compassion practice we did outward, you just do it inward. You just say, gosh, I'm, this is hard for me right now. I, am, I can't believe how afraid I feel. I really wish that I I could see that I was safe and I was okay. And that kind of tending to the self allows you to step outside of that pretty strong kind of amygdala response of this is wrong, this is not okay. Wonderful researcher by the name of Paul Gilbert. He writes on uh, compassion-focused therapy. He divides our, 
our brain, I do it this way because it's a, it's a loose model of the brain, if there's any neuroscientist in the room, he divides our, our model of the brain as having a system of uh, kind of uh, fear and response, a system of imagination, and a system of soothing. And so that kind of fear and response is often guiding the way. <laughs> it's our oldest part of our brain, our reptilian part of our brain. That imaginative part can only come out, actually, if that fear response can be managed. But that soothing part of our mind, that ability to take care of ourselves, it really requires um, that reappraisal. That this is what's happening, I'm okay, this is okay. And interestingly, you know, re- reappraisal really is... Um, in our, our earlier or our newer part of our brain in a kind of um, prefrontal cortex area, it doesn't really matter where it is, but it does require that some effortful training. It's our fear response, we need no training. Effortful reappraisal, we need training. In my last meeting was my experience in your lecture. I remember my birth and it was traumatic for me. Mm. And the image of the surgeons... Yeah. That was my memory of my brain. Mine is the person in the other Wow. So it, it, it's, it hit me and I just went, what the? <laughs> Reappraise, stop. Yeah. This is not the experience. You've already processed this, but it is still affecting you. And yeah. everything you're saying, I, I had to go through it. Yeah. Um, down to the, I mean, I got to the breathing and the nose, feeling in the nose. Mm. I finally reached that point and then your slide came up. <laughs> uh, what you're teaching is, is not only extremely important, um, it makes a difference in the quality of life that's huge. Mm, thank you. The ability to sit through this lecture and practicing what you're teaching. I'm so glad. I am too. Thank you. Thank you. Yes? Do, do you know if the uh, Oster Center for Integrated Medicine has training in these skills? And if so, uh, Yeah, funny you should ask. It's like I planted you in the audience. Um, I'm starting an eight-week training June 27th, and it will be Monday evenings. Um, And the sign-up is online. And it's the full version of the Cultivating Emotional Balance course, so not the one that I adapt for students that's short. And in that, it's um, seven to nine, and it's eight Mondays, and one day of a full retreat. At Mount Zion. At Mount Zion. Yeah. So there's and they and they have many other programs as well. But yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, two questions. What would we search under to get access to what you've been talking about? Sure. The, the slides or the or general. The slides I sent them this morning, so they're online. I think already um, under the Mini Med School website. Um, I have a website. If you Google my name, and I have a lot of online teachings and the papers I've published and things of that sort. Um, yeah, it's here. Let's go to the beginning here. Um, but it's, but there's luckily living in San Francisco, there's so many options to learn these skills. There's a lot of people teaching. Oops. There we go. And and my question is, uh, what do you think of faking it as a strategy? Hmm. Give me an example. Um, just not having to deal with somebody sure. in a professional setting yeah. and uh, having to, needing to listen. Totally. 
and to figure out what's the best advice to give to them, but just not feeling like you want to do it. Totally. Yeah, it's a great question. So he asked about faking it. <laughs> um, without that strategy, we would not survive. I mean, it is, it's so crucial. And it's interesting, there's been some research and writing on what's called deep acting versus surface acting. So the deep acting of this person comes in the room, I'm trying to pretend I care, and I just go to this deep place, like, okay, I'm going to pretend this is my mom, right? Or I'm just going to really get in there. And then there's the surface acting of, I know what's expected of me, and I'm going to perform it. And it may not, both of these are not necessarily authentic to how we feel. And the danger can be that if either in deep or in surface acting, we can start to feel alienated from our own emotional experiences. So deep acting, not recommended, because you really do start to lose yourself in, in your emotions. You're, you're not as much, um, you're not, a, you're not, it's not, because you never want to be above your emotions, but you're not, um, you're just, you're drenched when you're deep acting. The surface acting is okay, but it's, you have to almost imagine as though you had a, a rope tethered to the core self of what you really feel. So checking in, like, that was really not how I feel. Sometimes people do practices of reflective writing, or sometimes just, again, just looking inward of, that was really hard to pretend I cared because that person was really callous, and that person was actually mean or rude, and I had to be present. And, and many parts of our job require that, and, and I don't think there's anything per se wrong with it. It's, it's emotional labor. It's part of what's the emotional labor of the work as long as we don't lose kind of track of our authentic feelings. The first book on emotion labor was written um, in 1983, and, um, wow, I'm totally forgetting the name. Anybody know emotion labor? The book is called, uh, it'll come to me, um, but it's about airline stewardesses who every day in Southwest are just, you know, definitely faking it, right? And the differences in how they process that level of high performance on a daily basis. And a lot of them suffer from that feeling of uh, emotional distress and being overwhelmed. So, yeah. I don't know if that's a real answer, but yes, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, I, I've taken all of this as a parent of teenagers. Mm. Um, I gotta fake it. <laughs> but, um, but one of Mm. Um, and I always have something, even if that day was horrific. Mm. And, um, and not too long ago, one of my kids said, you know what, Mom, I'm going to give an appreciation of you. So, so like, that, like, something clicked. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, Yes, I, I hear that a lot. <laughs> so that I don't know if everyone heard that, but um, her approach with her kids is to, in, in order to manage the feelings of frustration or annoyance or maybe even disappointment on a daily basis, to end the day with an appreciation of the kids so that she reminds herself of what that's like. And then what she says is there's an experience 
where the kid actually reflected that back to her of appreciating her, which was so lovely. So, yeah. And I do think people, uh, when I give lectures, especially in a more corporate setting, which I occasionally do, um, people are always like, yeah, 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 I get it, but my boss doesn't get it. So, like, how? And there's no, you can't fix someone. (laughs) <laughs> from the outside, and I do think that that you know, I, I, I the people don't like to hear, but I'm like, you gotta find the goodness in this person. You gotta focus on that, and you gotta model that. And that's not that's not like a direct lead to helping them. But there's not what, what's your, again, what is your other option? Fight it, you know. Hold on, like, oh, I'm gonna wait till they're wrong, and then I'm gonna be like, yes. Um, not really worth it in the end. So I really just think of. You know, if you really have an intention of wanting to be more balanced and wanting to be more at peace, you just kind of, like, if that really is close in your mind, you actually become emotional about less stuff. That's generally what I found. Yeah? Well, I think when we as patients know that our doctors really care. Yeah. I happen to have the most awesome, fantastic primary doctor in the whole wide world. <laughs> I will go to him and he will refer back to what I may have gone in for a year before. Wow. Something like, oh, I, went in, I had a broken toe a week before I was going to a spa for a week. A year later I went, he said, how did that work out when you went to the spa with that broken toe? Hmm. Well, I mean, whether it's in the notes and he takes the time to look at my notes before he walks into the room or what. But of course, I take it personally yeah. that he cares. And then I give it back so that he feels great, I really appreciate you. Yeah. You know, you remember or you, you say something. He does it every time I go in. That's so great. That's, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if everyone heard that, but just a mutual appreciation with a provider who shows care and intent by remembering and then showing and responding with appreciation. That's, that's an ideal situation. I'm glad to hear that. So I think we have time for just one more question, if there's another question. Okay. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.